Hi, I'm Jess. And I'm Nina. And you're listening to Slice Slice of Murder. Murder. on a good run so far i know we're like not behind very yeah super consistent so i'm really proud of us yeah and thank you to all of you who have made it to our fifth episode thank you for listening our stats are definitely getting better like the first one a lot of people started it and then immediately stopped (laughs) listening but on our last one we actually saw some people listen through the entire thing yeah, and that's fine because it happens and <laughs> we're getting better, I think. I hope you agree. Our sound, we've like changed up a few things for the feedback, so hopefully it's sounding a lot better on yeah, your end. Like a lot clearer. Yeah. So, um Yeah, is there anything that we need to touch on? I think the only thing that I wanted to say was that we are going to put like a case request up, um Instagram oh, yeah. post. Uh, just so if you guys have any cases that you want us to cover, we're going to link that in our Instagram. We're going to post it on our Instagram and then link it in our bio so that if you have any cases that you feel super strongly about, you can request for us to cover those cases and then we'll cover them in the future. Yeah, so please do. I feel like that's always the hardest part for us is just deciding which case to do because there are so many out there. And I feel like, mm-hmm. yeah, if you guys request it, that makes it a lot easier on us. Yeah, because we can like figure out what you guys are interested in yeah. in hearing about. Yeah. Anything else? Um. Let's see. No. Yeah. I guess. Well, our Wi-Fi has not been working <laughs> for like the past week, basically. Yeah. And I know I'm just like I'm worried about just downloading this episode afterwards. Yeah. Because my I've been using a lot on um. I've been using my hotspot a lot for lesson planning this yeah. weekend, and I just got a message saying now, like, my internet's going to be a lot slower. Oh, so, boy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, great. Oh, boy. And well, last night, we watched a movie, like, on my hotspot. Oh, my. That's not good. Yeah. Well, hopefully this gets out to you on Tuesday. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Hopefully. We'll all have internet by Tuesday. We don't know. <laughs> All, right. All right. Um. So today I'm covering something a little bit different. Um. I was listening to Morbid's last podcast, and the last one that they released was an episode on cults. And I always forget how much I like listening to episodes on cults. Like I just find them super fascinating, just like the psychological reasons behind mm-hmm. why people join a cult and like why people start cults. So, I was inspired, and so today I am covering one of the biggest cults um, ever, which is called the People's Temple, and I'm covering the guy that started it all, who is Jim Jones. I don't think I've ever heard of this case, but I did start listening to Morbid's Mm -hmm. case just today. I didn't finish it, but yeah, it's so interesting, so I'm really excited about this case. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to give you a quick synopsis, and then I will get into it. So, one of the biggest cults in American history, and one that led to hundreds upon hundreds of deaths, the People's Temple was a cult founded by Jim Jones, an influential preacher that conceived, convinced thousands of people to follow his every command. Jones's, Jones's whole life revolved around religion, control, and power. 
Slice of Murder takes you through Jones's entire history from his birth to his death that changed American culture forever. So we've got a lot of depth coming up at the end. Um, so it is kind of like a murder episode, but we're going to f- spend like a lot more time on, on how he like conceived this cult and like his rise to power. What year was this? So it was mainly in the 70s that okay. happened. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to start with his early life. Uh, James Warren Jones, often called Jim for short, was born on May 31st, 1931 to James Thurman Jones and Lynetta Putman. He was born in Crete, Indiana, which was like a small rural farming community. Um, Jim's, Jim's mother, Lynetta, was said to have absolutely no maternal instincts and often abandoned or ignored Jim. Yeah, so she was, like, super focused on school, which was actually really revolutionary for her time. Like, she received a business degree, and for a woman to receive that at that time was, like, super rare. Um, so she was always more focused on her career. But with the Great Depression, she ended up marrying James Jones, um, Jim's father, just for some more, like, financial security, and eventually settled down to have a child's Jim. So she wasn't, like, very happy about the way that her life turned out, but she had to have some financial security, so that's why she made the decision. Uh, Jim's father was a World War I veteran who had suffered through a chemical attack. Due to this, he had a lot of difficulty breathing, and strenuous movement was almost impossible for him. Um, he could barely even talk due to his, the chemical attack, so he and his wife almost never talked, which... Wow. Yeah, made for a super healthy relationship. <laughs> Um, so because of his disability, the family often had to move around. He couldn't really work. Um, he had tried to start with doing like farm labor, but his disability became too much for him and he ended up doing like odd jobs here and there. So they were really, really falling behind in their financial situation. In 1934, their family was evicted from their home as they could not pay their mortgages and they moved to Lynn, Indiana, which was kind of nearby, but it was like a little bit of a bigger town. The Joneses' relatives purchased a tiny house, which was, like, really more of a shack for the family to live in, um, and it lacked plumbing and electricity, so it didn't have anything. It's just, like, a, a shelter. And this is, like, in Indiana, so it's, like, pretty cold, like, in the winter. Like, it's, yeah, it's, it's not, crazy. like, out here, you know? So they were not in a good situation. Um, they tried to make money through farming, uh, but due to his father's health, they were not able to continue farming. Um, and because James was so young at this point, like he was like four years old, he couldn't contribute anything to the family yet. Um, his father's health deteriorated considerably, and his family had to resort to taking money from relatives and even foraging in the surrounding woods or fields for food. So they were like really desperate at this time. Um, as a small boy, he was, like, often alone, so he often played by himself. Like, his neighbors recall him just running around without any clothes, like, just completely by himself. Um, and he was also, he also played a lot with, like, animals he caught. So he was, like, obsessed with catching animals. He, like, had chickens, snakes, goats, dogs, like, a lot of just these, like, random animals that he caught that he considered as his friends. Yeah, well, he didn't really have anyone, right? You said his yeah. mom wasn't very maternal. And yeah. His dad has an injury, so he's yeah. no siblings. No siblings. So he didn't really have anybody except for the animals. Um, so he began to go to school, and his extended family, which was his father's parents mainly, um, were like tired of giving him handouts, and they threatened his mom, Lynetta, with ceasing their financial assistance unless she got a job and began to work. So she got a job outside the house, working long hours at a factory to earn enough money, 
Um, meanwhile, James was hospitalized multiple times for his lung illnesses. And like I said, Jim was often left completely alone at a young age and was forced to care for himself. Um, so he ended up being given like clothes and food mostly by neighbors and relatives. Um, and he often relied on them to feed and house him while his parents were gone. So like he completely grew up without any like parental or family, like familial situation. Yeah. Yeah, that's really sad. Because I feel like you always need someone, like, at least to talk to, Mm -hmm. like, play with Mm -hmm. when you're so young. So he began going to church as a young boy, um, most likely brought by a neighbor or a member of his extended family because his parents were not religious at all, which is actually, like, really um, scandalous for his community. Like, his town, Lynn, was really, really a religious town, and so his parents, like, refused to go to church, and so they were kind of seen as, like outcasts and sinners for not attending church do you know why they refused um his dad was just often hospitalized and then his mom was an atheist and she like Mm -hmm. talked a lot about like social views and how the church didn't line up with her social views okay so he formed a strong connection to religion almost immediately um through going and he first met the wife of a pastor of the local nazareth church in his community named myrtle kennedy um, Kennedy became something of like a mother figure to him and she took pity on him and saw him as this like lost boy that needed help and she welcomed him into the church community. Uh, she gave him his own Bible and like instructed him to study it every single day and he just kind of saw religion um, as a place where he could find community. So because he ha- didn't have any sort of community in his home life, he really took a liking to religion. Yeah, you know how when sometimes your parents are like, don't want you to do something, like his mom was atheist, like maybe that was also mm-hmm. a way of like being a little bit like rebellious, like, yeah. oh, I want to be part of the church, yeah. I want to do this. Yeah. So he became enthralled with religion and going to church. Um, he attended church almost daily instead of weekly, and he like went to several different churches each week. So he was even baptized at multiple different churches like under different sects of christianity so like he'll go to every single church in town just to To like to be there yeah just to like be at a different sermon every single day um did his mom know no not really because she was like not really a part of his life okay yeah so while going to church um he developed a desire to become a preacher so as a young child he began practicing in private um, imitating several several pastors that he listened to. So he had this big barn in his backyard and he would preach to all his animals that were in the barn, like all his like animals that he kept. Like he would deliver sermons to all the animals in his barn. Aww. Yeah, so his mother, like we said, was like not supportive of his goals and like caught him several times preaching to his animals yeah. um, and unsuccessfully attempted to bar him from attending church services. Like, I feel like she should at least understand that this is giving him a sense of community yeah. to be able to meet friends. Yeah. People have a motherly figure. Yeah. But, but she's not able to give him. Nothing. Um, so while this was a good outlet for him to find community, like, his interest was borderline, like, obsessive. So his neighbors were really wary of Jim's obsession with religion. Um, They claimed that religion and death were Jim's sole topics of interest, and he was often alone without any friends as a young child. And, like, all he did was go to church and then talk about religion. So it definitely was, like, something he was, like, way too focused on. Like, that was the only thing that he was involved in. 
Yeah, but I also feel like it's not his fault. Yeah, yeah. None as a child, no. Um, as he grew older, he began to act out. He would steal small trinkets and candy from shops in town, and he said that he was often angry and frustrated with the people around him. Um, and he said that by the end of the third grade, he was so mad at the world around him, especially at his parents, that he could have killed somebody. So, like, at the end of third grade, he was already expressing these thoughts of, like, violence and frustration, which is pretty sad. But, I mean, I think it makes sense if you grow up in, like, this total neglect without anybody, Mm -hmm. like, you do become so mad. Yeah, no one to nurture you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he said he has a very clear memory of his parents being gone and how that caused him to harbor a lot of hostility and anger. And he said that he remembers always standing alone at school events while every single other kid was with their parents like i know with like at all the school um showcases and every single like event like he was totally alone and his parents never came to those yeah so it was he said that school was really difficult for him because of that but despite this he was often described as like very very intelligent like he was really good at the actual act of school yeah like just studying and he was just very naturally intelligent and to me, it makes sense that he turned to religion so wholeheartedly. His obsession with the church was most likely an obsession with, like, finding a sort of family for himself since his own blood family had basically abandoned him. So it definitely makes sense to me why he focused so much on religion. That was just, like, what was in the town at the time, and that was what was accessible to him at the time. And then we'll talk a little bit more later about, like, what he saw in all these preachers. But it does make sense to me, like, that's why he turned to the church for for to like find connection yeah it makes sense because he kind of wants like a sort of escape from his mm-hmm. regular life mm-hmm. yeah so but it didn't really give him any popularity in, in school or in social life because when he started high school he continued to be a loner um he still held super strong religious views and these would alienate the other students in his school which, like, kind of makes sense, because, like, any sort of difference, I feel like, when you go to high school will, like, make you a learner, like, people will pick on the one thing that makes you different. Yeah. So he did not, yeah, so he didn't really have a lot of friends, um, and he often confronted his peers and condemned them for drinking, smoking, and dancing, saying that these were immoral actions. So (laughs) he didn't really help himself either, like. (laughs) Yeah, and this is, like, the 1940s now? Yeah, he's, it's, like, 1943-ish, so. He was not happy with them for that. But what um, about, like, his church friends or he, other people? He didn't like, really have a lot of friends anywhere. Okay. Um, but he started to kind of figure out social situations um, as he figured out how to kind of change his personality to fit in with others. So outside of school, he started to command a certain energy over a group of his peers, um, and he realized at this age, that if he changed his personality around certain people, he could attract them to follow him. So this is just like kind of socialization that a lot of kids learn pretty young, but because he was so alone at such a young age, like he kind of figured this out a little bit later um, when he was a little bit older. So he began to began he began to be surrounded by a group of boys who he ended up also preaching to in the barn behind his house. So he kind of like controlled their social group. Um, One source I read said that, like, this group of boys often had, like, falling outs or emotional, like, entanglements, Mm -hmm. and he, like, learned how to navigate these to, like, put himself at the top of the social pyramid. So, yeah, so he would, like, learn how to manipulate people's emotions and kind of, like, their social situations 
to position himself as a leader. Yeah, that's interesting that he learned that. Mm-hmm. Just, like, knowing that he didn't really have that communication mm-hmm. at home. Yeah. Or with uh, With, any like, anybody, friends. yeah. yeah. It, well, it definitely shows, like, he just had, like, a natural instinct for this kind of thing, which is, I think, we usually see these in, like, cult leaders or really influential people. They just have this, like, certain thing about them that impacts people enough for those people to follow them like and do whatever they say so this was definitely just like a natural ability that he had um but he didn't really figure it out till later yeah so he began to lecture his friends um about science religion and morals and really just seemed to want an audience to talk to like that was his main goal i think is not really like the religious aspect of it but more just having a following and more just like being able to talk to people and have people listen to him that's why i think he was so obsessed with like the preachers at a young age because he saw how people responded to the preachers and the preachers were up at the top of the the church and like they had this huge congregation of people like following them and listening to them yeah and that's why he was like so obsessed with them so that's why i think he wanted to kind of emulate that Mm -hmm. so in high school jim went to a baseball game in richmond indiana Um, This was around 1945, so racism was, like, hugely apparent in society. Like, it still is, but it was just, like, a lot more socially norms. Like, there's very clear segregation, things like that. Um, And at this baseball game, he was really bothered by the treatment of black spectators at the game. He began to read more about discrimination and racism and the history behind it. And this incident sparked his lifelong passion for fighting against racism and discrimination. So in, like, 1945, yeah, that's, like, a pretty good, like... That's, like, this is like one of the pretty good things that he does. Um, he was really influenced by his mother. So one of the reasons why his mother was more atheistic was that she said that social issues and, like, social welfare was not focused on by the church. So she often spoke out against these social issues. Like, she was very condemning of racism and discrimination as well. Um, so this kind of became a cornerstone of his belief system and it was like really ingrained in his, into his psyche at a, like a young age mm-hmm. so this became this is like something that comes up again and again and again um and he actually said that his dad was like associated with the Ku, Ku Klux Klan and he stopped speaking to his dad for years wow. after he didn't let one of his black friends come into the house oh my god so yeah so he became like super obsessed with this idea of fighting against uh, racism and discrimination And it kind of led into his focus on, like, different political systems and different theocracies. So he would often go to the community library and spend hours and hours and hours reading the political writings of varied world leaders, including Mao Zedong, who is the communist leader of China, Karl Marx, Joseph Stalin, Hitler, and Mahatma Gandhi. So these are very, like, super varied, um, like, political, Um. like political influences like every single one of them almost has like a different kind of view on like how the world should run Mm -hmm. but something that they all have in common is that they all had a massive social following like every single one of these people were able to attract support from a huge amount of followers and i think he was not really aligning himself with any of their views just yet Mm -hmm. he just wanted to consume as much literature about these people that were able to control like crowds and like countries of people yeah so that's like what he focused most of his time on in high school yeah that is really fascinating Mm -hmm. though like Mm -hmm. to read about Mm -hmm. yeah like just the entire theocracy and like the entire kind of 
social uh, like part of it all I think is really what drew him to reading about those leaders yeah Yeah. um so after high school in about 1945 uh Jim's parents divorced so they like we said like they really had did not have a good relationship like they they didn't they didn't talk at all um he was like 16 years older than like his dad was like 16 years older than his mom so i don't yeah they didn't really have a lot in common um they couldn't talk and his dad had actually like developed a gambling addiction later in life so like he was like wasting a lot of the family's money that they didn't have a lot of in the first place so they separated and eventually divorced um and jim moved to richmond uh, indiana not California (laughs) with his mother um so he was like 15 at this time so he graduated from Richmond High School in 1948 um after the divorce they lost the financial support of their extended family because like I said like their extended family that kept giving them money was the dad's parents and like the dad's side of the family so when they divorced they stopped giving them money yeah that makes sense yeah um, so they really were still struggling at this point, even though it was just him and their mom and, you know, they didn't have like the dad kind of weighing down their financial resources anymore. Um, so Jim began working as a, at an orderly at a nursing hospital called Reed Hospital after the divorce. So there's like varied stories about Jim at this hospital. Some people say he was a really hard worker and like really looked up to the people who were above him and kind of helped them out and was, like, very focused on helping people at this nursing hospital. And then some people said that he really mistreated people who were below him. So, like, he would force them to do, like, really, like, menial tasks, like, really embarrassing Mm -hmm. tasks, like, just to kind of exert control over them. Like, he would force them to do, like, really whack things, like, just to say that he could do that. Yeah. I mean, he is reading about all these dictators mm-hmm. that did the same thing. Exactly. So it makes sense where it's coming from. Yeah. And that, yeah, he's trying to impress the people above him that doesn't uh-huh. really care about uh-huh. the people below him. Yeah. So there's, like, kind of varied stories about him there. Um, but overall, they said he was, like, a very hard worker, and he he did do a lot of good things while he was there. Um, and he impressed a coworker so much that she like began dating him. So she was really into oh, him. Wow. <laughs> um, and this was Marceline Baldwin, and she was actually his partner until like for forever. So for his whole life. Oh my god. Which sometimes I feel like that's rare. Like I feel like you hear stories that they like divorce a bunch of people and then like yeah. keep marrying like younger and younger people in their cult. But he was married to her until the end. Oh. So. He um, started dating her in 1947, and she was actually five years older than Jim at the time, so I think he was, like, 19, and she was, like, 24, Um, but she fell for him due to his hard work at the hospital, and they started dating. Um, He attended Butler University and got a degree in education, um, and at first wanted to be a doctor, like, due to his work in the nursing hospital, but then uh, decided against it and went for education instead. Um, and he didn't really use this degree until later. Like, he didn't become a teacher until much, much later in his life. But um, he did get a degree in education, so. Yeah, I feel like, yeah, if you want, like, not that teachers are dictators or anything, but yeah. back then it's more like, 
You have to listen to what the teacher yeah. says. Like, it makes sense. Way. If he wants to be at the front of the room yeah. talking to a group of people who have to listen to him, like, this is a degree that makes sense. Yeah, and he is influencing a lot of people. Yeah. Right? Like, it definitely makes sense for his goals and, like, what he wants to mm-hmm. achieve in his life. Um, but, like I said, he doesn't really use that until later. Yeah. yeah. So, in 1949, he was, like, pretty young at this point. He was only 18. Um, He married Marceline, and he began to speak out against her wealthy upbringing. So, she was, like, brought up in a pretty wealthy family. She had a lot of privilege, and since he was not, he was kind of trying to educate her on, like, how the world was unfair, but he didn't really do it in the best way. So he often told her that her views on the world were super naive and dumb, and he was, like, often very verbally abusive towards her, and it was, like, in their house, like, in their situation, it was, like, he was the boss, like, he knew it all. She didn't have, like, any say in anything. Yeah. Um, so Marsley, who was, like, deeply Christian, was concerned that he was kind of straying away from his religious faith, so when she met him, like, she, like I said, like, he was still very religious, like, very entrenched in the church. Um, and during this time, she was concerned he was kind of moving away. Um, he was focused more on social issues like racism, discrimination, poverty, things like that. Um, and she was kind of concerned that he was just moving away from the teachings of the church and kind of focusing too much on his own kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, like, not what she she wanted for yeah that's like not what she married him for was not like Mm -hmm. into him for so she became super concerned about their relationship however in 1950 um they discovered the methodist faith and connected with the preachings of the methodist church which called for a lot of social work and collective well-being so it's kind of like a combination of the two things that they cared about because it was still part of the church it was still part of her faith um but it also had a little bit more focus on social well-being and the things that Jim cared about which was kind of the good for all and like improving society through providing for those who like have been historically cast off okay yeah yeah so they compromised yes so this is all well and good so far like this is not the thing that I think people have an issue with about him yeah, so far <laughs> so far like, he's like pretty good yeah no <laughs> So in 1953, um, they moved to Indianapolis um, to be in a little bit of a bigger city, just to have a little bit more freedom to kind of follow their passions. And he began to make plans for his own vision in which he wanted to lead the first fully integrated Methodist congregation in Indianapolis. So this is like 1953, which is like, this is like a really big dream for that time period. Yeah. Because a lot of things were fully segregated here. A lot of things, like, were not even in the process of being integrated during this time. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was his dream. Like, he wanted to lead the first congregation that was fully fully integrated. Um, I think he also wanted to make a space for children um, of the Methodist congregation, like a fully integrated playground. That was, like, also one of his dreams because those, like, did not exist. Um, So that, that was also, like, part of his thing that he wanted to create in Indianapolis. Um, so he began to raise money to buy a new venue because he wanted, like, his own venue, like, his own church to kind of preach at. Um, and at a Pentecostal convention, 
he like spoke for an hour so he would go to these conventions and speak and preach to the people there like a lot of people would go and just to hear like different preachers from across the nation um and so he got time at this pentecostal convent convention and he got an hour um he held like everybody's attention so everybody that showed up was like entranced by him um and those who attended felt super super connected to him and just very enthralled with what he was saying so he is still kind of showcasing this natural ability to lead people and to hold people's attention and to hold power over a group um which is things that he kind of learned when he was younger through his study of these world leaders and then also through his study of religion um he just showed that he had like a natural ability to do that and this was his passion like this is what he wanted to do but you know some people have that and some people don't yeah, have that people, yeah yeah might not be great leaders who want to do that or yeah. maybe not great speakers or exactly. their ideas like even though his ideas are not how would i say it? like people don't think segregation mm-hmm. is bad yeah but now that he's like speaking about it and people are paying attention to him, mm-hmm. I feel like it's really powerful for yeah. him. Yeah. Probably gives him like some power. Yeah. Or power drive. Yes. Like it definitely did. Like through this kind of thing that he kept on doing, like he kept on realizing more and more like the power that he could have and he just kept wanting more and more and more. Yeah. So during this um, speech that he did, he connected Bible passages to modern social issues like poverty, racism, and the abandonment of the elderly. So he kind of connected two things that people, like one thing that people really cared about at this convention, which was the Bible, and then one thing that he wanted to work for, which was these social issues. So yeah, they kind of intertwined the two, um, whereas other speakers more just focused on like the biblical yeah. passages and more just focused on like the religion, as- religion aspects of it all. He wanted to use religion to further his own goals. Yeah, because I feel like if he didn't mention religion at all, people might not pay attention to him. They might say, oh, he's too radical Yeah, like for me to even care about or listen to. Yeah, like he was definitely at this point more using religion as a tool rather than what he believed in. Yeah, Yeah. I can see that. And it's, like, really smart of him to do that. Yes. Like, he definitely has done his research and knows. Yeah. Like, he knows how to connect these people that were, like, super into religion. Like, he knew how to get them on his side. Mm -hmm. He knew how to kind of bring up the things that they cared about so he could kind of push his own views. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But like I said, he was really smart. Like, he was, like, I think he graduated with honors from his high school. So, like, he was very, very good at writing and speaking and things like that so so after this um people were pretty impressed with him and at his local tabernacle in indianapolis he was given time to preach so they'll give you they'll they'll give you like an hour or like a day of the week and be like oh well you can lead this congregation at 10 a.m or at like 1 p.m or whatever like they'll give you time to preach so he was given time to preach at a local tabernacle and he knew that this was kind of his in to the church and this was like the way that he was going to get more people to follow him and more people to join his mm-hmm. teachings so he began to amaze people with what he called faith healings 
Um, and these faith healings were solely designed to coerce people into believing that basically he had like magical or mystical powers. Um, and he said that they were granted by our higher power. So he was super connected to this higher power, um, that he had the ability to cure people of terrible diseases. So he would call people up to the front of the pulpit and like basically using like sleight of hand, um, he would produce an animal organ that he claimed with the source of the individual's sickness. So he would like call people with cancer up to the top of the pulpit and be like, oh, ta-da. Yeah, like here's your, your tumor, like you're cured forever. And like people would believe this even if they didn't get better. Like they just wanted to believe so much that somebody yeah. could heal them that they were like really, really enamored with like this faith healing tactic in particular so yeah i was gonna say i took a whole class on on this in college like on social conformity Uh yeah where they like talk about like someone's like healing you and then you kind of like feel like you just have to comply to that and say like yes i feel healed Mm -hmm. and then the next person like even though they might not feel healed they'll also say like yes i feel healed just because of that conformity aspect, and it's so interesting. Yeah, like, that they don't want to stick me. out. Yeah, they yeah. don't want to say, like, no, right? Yeah. So, it was, I think at the beginning, he only wanted to use this to kind of get attention. But like I said, like, he realized how much power this gave him, and he realized how popular he was becoming because of this. And then this became one of his biggest tactics to draw in and engage people. So, at the beginning, he only wanted to use it for a short period of time, but then it ended up becoming one of his biggest, like, recruitment tactics, yeah. I'll say. Um, many people are doing these faith healings for obvious reasons. Jim preyed on those who were desperate, often too poor to pay for hospital cures, or those who had, like, no familial support system. Um, so when he performed faith healings, he received tons of donations. So this is something we see in, like, cult leaders as well. Like, they do prey on people. Like, they know how to locate people that are, like, lonely. Or they know how to locate people that are desperate, are vulnerable. So these are the people who would often come to him because this is like a last resort. Yeah, they have nothing else. Like you said, they don't have money. Yeah. Family, like this is their last shot. Mm-hmm. So why not? You yeah, know, so, so it was definitely like an act of desperation, but he knew how to use people's desperation to further his own power and mm-hmm. his own like goals. Yeah. So. He had began working at Somerset Southside Methodist Church in Indiana in Indianapolis um, as like a student preacher. So he was like learning how to become a preacher. But uh, he ends up leaving. Um, he claimed he left because the church would not let him integrate his congregation. But he was accused of stealing money from the church. Oh. So like they said they fired him because he was stealing money. He said he left because the church wouldn't let him integrate his congregation mm. is very unclear like why. they're both very like believable yeah can see how they might be like oh you can't like continue speaking because he's talking too much about social issues yeah which but is also he's using people vulnerable people like, yeah. to his advantage so <laughs> yeah so very unclear um maybe a little bit of both but he definitely was obsessed with getting money like this kind of goal of getting money was all so he could open up his own church. So, like, I could see him taking money to 
be yeah, able to yeah. Himself, yeah he probably yeah. realized how many like donations he got yes and was like oh i can definitely make a living off of this yes so eventually he did get enough money um using donations from these faith healings or using donations from other places um he ended up opening his own church which he named the community unity church in 1954 and this one was a fully integrated church. Like like he said, that just became like a big part of his cornerstone beliefs was the full integration of races and the kind of support of people who have been historically marginalized. Mm-hmm. So he began to amass like super dedicated followers, including black youth that were who were super impressed by his focus on racial unity. Uh, he was joined by preacher Russell Winberg, Jack Beam, Patty Cartmel, Jack Cobb, and Archie Yamas. And these became the people that were, like, in his society until the end. Like, these became the, like, cornerstones of his cult, basically. Um, so these people became the leaders and the founding members of the People's Temple of Indianapolis, which he officially renamed his church to in 1957. So it was a fir- first name, the Community Unity Church, and then he renamed it to the People's Temple, um, which is what we know his cult as today. Yes. So in his People's Temple, things started out, like, fantastically. Like, like I said, up until now, like, he's not really doing anything that terrible. Like, he's really focused on social justice, and he's really focused on making sure people have what they need, and he's really focused on racial unity. Like, that's not bad. Like, what he's doing right now is, like, not terrible. Yeah, I feel like, yeah, the worst thing he's done right now is potentially stolen money from the church. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm, like, really impressed that he kept to his goals. Yes. And, like, for, like, segregation mm-hmm. and uniting people. That's, like, really impressive. Yeah, especially at this time period. Yeah, because so many people are against it. Yeah. So it's really brave of him to, like, speak out on these issues. Yeah. So, um, Jones ended up opening a bunch of soup kitchens and nursing homes that were also associated with the church. And at these spaces, uh, he would, you know, he would serve food and he would provide care to the elderly, but he would also encourage and convince solitary and desperate people to attend his church and join his congregation. So, yes, on one hand, it was a space that he could further his goal of, like, social welfare, but on the other hand, it was a space that he knew he could get desperate people. Yeah. Yeah. Now, like, I'm starting to think, is the reason he chose, like, to talk about these issues is because he is talking about, like, people who are marginalized, mm-hmm. and they are oftentimes most vulnerable. Yeah. And now they're going to be following him, right? Because he's showing them his support, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So that's it's definitely is a big part of, like, why he chose that. I do think he genuinely believed in, like, some of the issues that okay. he was speaking out for. And we'll talk a little bit more about later about how, like, communism and socialism became, like, the main drivers of his uh, force and, like, of his cult. And in those kinds of situations, like, he really did truly want everyone to live in unity. But it definitely, I think, was a tactic for him to, like, specifically seek out certain communities Mm -hmm. like who gain their support because nobody else was giving them support like he was the only person like speaking out for these people at least in like terms of religion in indianapolis so it was a very easy way for him to like connect with people yeah Yeah. 
So, yeah, he convinced a lot of people to join his church through these soup kitchens and nursing homes, people who were poor, people who were old, people who didn't have any support system or didn't have any family. Um, this is where he got his, the makeup of his uh, congregation. Um, so his wife, Marceline, at this time was like super desperate for a family. Uh, he was spending a lot of time on his church and in his job, and she wanted him to spend more time with his family. So in total, they had seven children. Um, some of them, most of them were adopted. One of them was biological. But in 1954, the two adopted a child named Agnes. She was, like, actually left at the temple by her mom. Like, she, when she was 10, like, she was pretty old. Like, it wasn't, Aww. like, a baby either. Like, but she was just abandoned by her mom, like, at this That's temple. So I know. So they ended up adopting her. They adopted um, Lou, Stephanie, and Suzanne from Korea. They had their biological son, Stefan, and later in the same year, this is about like 1961, they adopted Jim Jones Jr. and later Timothy Glenn Tupper. So he called this his rainbow family um, because a lot of his children were of different races. Jim Jones Jr. was a black child that he adopted. Um, so he did continue his kind of preachings into his own personal life. Like he wanted Stefan and Jim Jones Jr. to be raised, like, as twins, like a black child and a white child to be raised as twins. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people attack him because they said this is, like, just a show. Like, he wanted, like, a production. Like, he wanted to, people to look at his family, and it wasn't really something that, like, his family it's wasn't sad. something that he cared about. It was just something that, like, he wanted to, like, put on display for people. Like, oh, look what I can, like, look, it continues into my own life as well. Um, because Marceline said that he didn't really spend a lot of time with his own children. Like, mm -hmm. he adopted a bunch of these kids, but, like, he spent a lot more time with the church. Yeah. Yeah. It's sad if it was all a show. Yeah. Right? Because, especially since he went through it himself. Mm -hmm. But I guess you can't argue, like, maybe he didn't know how to be a father because he never had that. Yeah, right. exactly. So, you know, there's different conversations on that, mm -hmm. but... So they had a lot of kids, um, but he wasn't really that involved with that. Um, so he continued to attend a lot of Pentecostal conventions and speak out, using religion as a carrier for his uh, ideologies. So he never went as far as calling for communism because during this time, um, World War II was ending and the Cold War was beginning. So like... This was like the Red Scare in America. Like, people were super against communism. Yeah. Um, but he did speak out in support of, like, a more communal-oriented society. Okay. Yeah, so he was definitely, like, a communist. Like, he definitely wanted communism, but, like, yeah. he knew he was smart enough to not call for that in his yeah. sermons. But he definitely spoke out, like, oh, well, we should have a more community-oriented society. And that's, like, really what he was trying to design his church to be is, like, a community where people came together and it was like a very shared society. So in his church, he really stressed that people should think in more egalitarian terms and dress in more casual clothes so poor members of the congregation wouldn't feel out of place. In 1960, Jones and his wife increased the work of their soup kitchens and helped out with even more social services such as rent, rent assistance and job placements. So again, these are good things, but he's also using them as a way to, like, indoctrinate people into his church. Mm -hmm. Like, he would go to these soup kitchens or these rent assistant um, 
you know, meetings or these job placement meetings and be like, oh, well, we can help you out and you should join my church. Like, we're this super community-oriented society. Like, this is where he got a lot of his followers and a lot of them were so desperate for somebody to care for them and somebody to look out for them that they accepted what he said wholeheartedly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, people are going to join if you're offering them, like, food, a shelter, right? Yeah. It, it makes sense. And so far, it doesn't seem like anything suspicious is happening yeah. with the church or, like, with his preachings. Yeah. So, it's definitely, like, shady, like, where he was going to get these people, but he's not falling so deep into power yet mm-hmm. that it's becoming, like, cult-like. It will soon. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I just keep waiting for you to say, like, yeah. we needed this. But no, yeah. it, like, keeps getting better. Like, oh, we can use... Yeah. We made a soup kitchen here. Yeah. yeah. So, in fact, like, all these good things, you know, he was even appointed to the Indianapolis Human Rights Convention. So he became, like, one of the leaders in the city for social welfare. Wow. So he began to exert more and more control over his congregation. Um, He carefully wove communist ideologies throughout his sermons and painted his organization as one that would give people what they needed based on what they had, which is there's not a problem with that. Like, if you are into that kind of stuff, cool. Like, if you want to create the society, like, where you just give people what they need and then they have certain things, that's fine. But it is a problem when you start requiring it. Like, when you're like, oh, you can only join this church if you give up everything and then I'll only give you what you need. Which is what he started to do. So he began to tell members of the church that they should spend more and more time with the church, and even requiring them to spend Christmas and Thanksgiving with their temple, like, quote-unquote family. So they weren't allowed to go home for Christmas and Thanksgiving. They had to spend Christmas and Thanksgiving in the temple. He introduced a program in which members of the church would donate all of their material possessions to the church, and in return, the temple would provide everything that those individuals needed. Yeah, so if you're creating a relationship where an individual relies on, like, one thing only, like, that's pretty culty. Yeah. <laughs> like, now it's getting bad. Like, yeah, yeah. Why can't they spend Christmas at home with their family? Why yeah. do they have to give you all their belongings? Yeah, so he was definitely becoming more and more obsessed with power at this point. Like, he saw how much power he had over leading the congregation um, in religion, like, religious terms. And he wanted to extend that to, like, every single part of their lives. Like, he definitely wanted to control every single part of their lives. Yeah. So, in 1961, as the Cold War continued and fear of a nuclear war grew, um, he became, like, super convinced and paranoid that Indianapolis would be the site of a nuclear attack. I don't know why they would choose Indianapolis, (laughs) to be honest. Like... Yeah, I don't know if that would be the first <laughs> I place. Been, yeah. I meant Indianapolis. Like, it's, I feel like it's probably not the place that they would choose. Um, like, I, I feel like they'd probably choose Washington D.C. or something yeah, if they New were going. Yeah, like if they were going to. One of those bigger cities. Yeah, like I, I don't know, but he was convinced that um, it would become the site of a nuclear attack, and so he wanted to change the location of the church. And he had read that South America would be the safest in a nuclear war. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, like, it was something about the mountains, like, providing kind of hiding places or blockage from, like, nuclear, like, bombs and the things, like, the radiation that they gave off. And then it's, they also thought that the war would only be between, like, North America and the USSR. 
So I guess that South America was like the farthest away or something. I don't really know. Now but, this case is starting to sound familiar yeah. and I feel like you've talked about it. Yeah, so he had read that South America would be safest. Um, so from 1962 to 1963, he began to travel through Brazil looking for a site to build his idea of a perfect community. So he wanted to take all of his people from Indianapolis and move them to Brazil um, to basically build like what he conceived of as like his own utopia. That's very far, like a very far move. Yeah, and I, he paid for all I, the, <laughs> the travel, the travel costs, accommodations, hotel accommodations, <laughs> the moving trucks. Yeah, I and, don't know. And also, yeah, what is his like speculation on that they're gonna bomb? Indianapolis. I don't know. He, like just, he just had a hunch. He had. He said he had a vision. A vision. Yes. Um, so his first vision his, ever. Yeah. So he was pretty convinced. Um, but while he was traveling, without him, the people's temple was falling apart. Like back in Indianapolis, like it was kind of falling apart. Which is just it goes to show that like it wasn't his ideologies that were keeping people together. Like it was him. Like he knew how to control people enough that they would feel super interconnected while he was there but then when he left people started fighting and people started kind of forming divide like there was divide divides been like creating like against each other and with yeah. each other um so a lot of people had actually left the church when he left yeah so during those like i think it was like a year and a half he was traveling well, that's a pretty long time yeah people had left um and he returned to Indianapolis, and that brought back some members, like a few, but most of them were gone. So he was actually forced to ch- sell his church and relocate to like a smaller kind of like rented space. Yeah. So he was not happy at all. Yeah, because yeah. it seems like he did not expect that at all. No. Like he really thought that he had um like full control over his church. Yeah, and and he had like... um put one of his other preachers in charge to kind of lead the congregation. And this preacher didn't really agree with all of Jim's ideas, so he was also kind of forming divides amongst the community as well. Yeah, that's a problem yeah. when your It's like second in command, yeah. The founders don't agree with you. Yeah, so the, yeah, so he was he was not really too happy with like the state of his church at this point. And he was like, I just gotta I just gotta change everything. Like I got I gotta have to start something new so he had almost no followers at this point um and he made the decision that he wanted to move to california so i guess brazil was not financially available to him anymore like he couldn't afford that but he said that he had northern california was like the second best place like if there was going to be like an attack like it was better to move to northern california than indianapolis like that was the safest place which I feel like they would. I don't know. California first. Yeah, like before. Like that's easier. Yeah, like that's like, an easier target. Like yeah, because that's literally on the same coast. Like that's like in the, across the same ocean as like the USSR. Like that's. I feel like that's probably one of the biggest targets that they would create. I don't know. Yeah, they're not gonna go for like the Mid East like, or somewhere where like because there's a lot of. It's nothing. random. There's it nothing. is literally. It's like Indiana and like what? Like what are they gonna bomb? Corn? Cows? <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so he said that he wanted to go to California. Um, I think you know, it wasn't really about this nuclear war. 
idea. It was more about just moving and relocating to a place where he knew he could have like more influence over people. Yeah. And he knew that if he moved and he like convinced people to come with him, those people would be like the loyal ones. Like he wouldn't have any more people in his congregation that were like secretly against him. So that's, I think, like why. That makes sense. Yeah. So he, uh, he ended up did, he ended up moving to California. Um, and he, he, again, he told his followers that he had a vision of Indianapolis being the site of a nuclear attack. And in July, 1965, he moved with about 140 of his members to Ukiah, California. I've never heard of it. Ukiah? Yeah. U-K-I-A-H. I, no, it's I've like up by the redwoods. So it's like. I've a, heard of it. Yuka. Um, I think it's Ukiah, but maybe it has changed. (laughs) So it's like up by the Redwoods, apparently. So it's like, it's like kind of. Oh, secluded. Yeah, secluded. Yeah, it's like a small town. So here's where he got a job as a teacher. So he got a job as a teacher at an adult education school nearby. And he used this to recruit students in his classes to join his church. So now he's with like his loyal members, like nobody in this congregation was, like, going to move out there if they didn't fully agree with him. Um, so all of these people that are in his church right now are, like, his biggest supporters, yeah. like, the biggest fans I mean, they moved across the country. For real. Like, they moved, like, Based everything that vision. they... Yes, everything that they had. So he was like, okay, well, now that I have, like, all these loyal people, now I need to get more and more people. Because, like, that's what he wanted. He wanted to get as much people as he could to follow him and listen to him. Like, he was not satisfied with only 140 people. Like... Yeah. He was really, really convinced that he could become, like, one of these huge world leaders like Hitler Mm -hmm. or, like, Mao Zedong or, like, Joseph Stalin. Like, these people that he was fascinated with in high school, like, he was convinced he could be, like, one of these people. Yeah, just like you said earlier, like, he just wants more and more power. Yeah, yeah. So, 140 people, not good enough. He was not, not too happy. So he and his followers also coerced more people to move from Indiana to California. And by 1969, there was about 300 members of the People's Temple in California. Wow. I feel like that's a pretty big amount like of people that you get to move for from you. Indiana, yeah. Indianapolis to California. I could not get 300 people to move to Indianapolis from here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely not. <laughs> like, I don't know, but... That's pretty impressive to me, but he was not happy with 300 people. Mm -hmm. So at this time, he was, like, as he was closely followed by this, like, super devoted congregation, who, like we said, they had dropped literally everything to move to California. Like, they dropped, like, they left behind their entire lives just to follow this guy to California and just to follow this religion. Like, they had, they, like, literally committed their entire lives to him. So at this time, he began pretty much inducing, uh, introducing his true plan for his church. He called it apostolic socialism. So like I said, he was like very in- entranced with socialism and the idea of communism. Um, and instead of like before, he had kind of intertwined the church and the teachings of the Bible into his social welfare plan. At this time, he complained that all other religions followed false gods and the Bible was written solely to oppress women and minorities, which, I mean, that's yeah. definitely a facet of <laughs> religion. Um, but at this time, he was basically like, no, everything else is fake. This is the only true religion. This is the only true one that you should follow. And everything else is bad. Based on what? Based on him. Just him. Yeah. <laughs> him knowing all this stuff. Yes. 
So he preached about something that he called the divine principle, which he said was following the one true God, which was not in any of the other religions, um, and following the beliefs of socialism, in which everyone got the, the, what they needed, and there was a community be created through love and care. Which, again, like, that's fine if yeah. you want to create that, but, like, you can't yeah, force ahead. people to do that. Like, you can't, like, indoctrinate people to do that. Like, that's mm-hmm. pretty bad. Like, if you want to, like, make your own community, like, your own, like, like commune. Truly, yeah, like, believe it. And who, like, want to be there and, like, want to, like, you know, yeah, form sure. something where we, like, look out for other people. Cool. But, like, he is trying to, like, create this super secluded utopia where everybody has to follow what he says and, yeah, and that's they become, it become like very dependent yes on him. yeah so he told his congregation that he actually he actually was a divine being like he was a he was, he was connected to god i don't think he said he was okay. god but he was like like he can talk basically god like basically. the earthly an earthly divine mm-hmm. being like he was who god had chosen to be his son like earthly yeah. Mouthpiece. This is a common theme yes. with a lot of cults. <laughs> yes. Where they say, oh, I can talk to God or yes. just tell me. Yeah. So he expected to be seen as godlike among his followers. Like, he was like, if you need a savior, I'm your savior. Like, if you need a god, I'm, I'll be your god. So he really just wanted, like, expected full cooperation and, like, basically unquestioned loyalty from his congregation. Like, every single thing that he said, they had to do. Um, and he would go to great dramatic lengths when anyone questioned his advice or told him no. So he claimed that any, um, I guess, questioning of him or of the decisions that his church made would cause him physical pain. So if somebody told him no, like he would lay on the ground screaming in pain until they would like go back and be like, okay, okay. Like a tantrum. Yes. (laughs) Yes. But he was like, oh, like it's ruining my internal organs. Like because you told me no, like I'm in such great pain. So eventually like people wouldn't question yeah so he claimed he was a messiah sent to save those who had been historically marginalized and attacked so like again he's preying on these people that like just need somebody to look for and need somebody to hold on to and he's saying like i'll save you like if in the past you've been marginalized and if in the past you've been discriminated against like i'm the one that's sent to help you yeah, and these people like probably trust him just because of all he's already done for a lot of yeah these people. Like he does help them. Like he does create these things that do help him and like them and do create a better social, you know, connection for mm-hmm. them. Like he does feed them. He does clothe them. He got them jobs. Yeah. Like things like that. So like they already see him as kind of like a father figure, like a trusting figure. Mm -hmm. And so whatever he does, they're going to follow. Yeah. Yeah. I can see like how they're still there, like how they Uh moved to California with him. Yeah. 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 So he, um, he claimed that America at this point, not only would Indianapolis get hit with a nuclear bomb, but America would enter a nuclear world war. Um, And he told his followers that once the war was over, like, that was, like, the apocalypse, like, the biblical apocalypse. And only he and and his followers would emerge from this nuclear world war. I don't know how, but they would somehow survive. They would somehow survive all of this radiation to create a perfect utopian socialist society. Yeah, I feel like 
now that they the people realize there's no nuclear war in Indianapolis, yeah. they maybe. should kind of, like, figure out, like, maybe this isn't happening. Yes. I mean, this was, like, the middle of the Red, like... The Red Like, scare. the Red Scare yeah. and, like, the Cold War. So that, like, kind of lasted until 1980, which, by 1980, they were all dead. So, um... Yeah, so they never really got see, to this point, yeah. but it definitely was like a big kind of fear in American society yeah. that somebody would bomb you. Um, but, but yeah, I don't really understand where they would go. Like, if there's a nuclear world war, like I don't think you can survive because yeah, it's there's just radiation logical. everywhere. So I'm not sure where they would live afterwards. But they said that they would emerge. They were chosen by this true god to emerge and create this like socialist society, and that they would just live happily ever after. Mm. So another common tactic of a cult is like using fear to manipulate your yes. followers. So this was definitely something that they that he was using at this point. Um, he frequently told his followers like he began to say that he had like more visions and prophecies for people, and he would like read people's minds, quote unquote, and make prophecies for people. So he frequently told his followers that if they disobeyed him, like he prophesied, he's like, you're, you're gonna die, like. Or you're That's gonna get terrible. an accident. You're gonna contract this deadly illness. Like you're gonna get this like horrible injury. So those are the people. Like he would give these prophecies out to people that like didn't follow what he said. And then for those that did not question him, he prophesied like success and health. And these people like I think truly think he is a like earth bound godlike figure so like they probably do believe him like oh fuck like yeah i'm gonna get in a car accident now that like i said no because like i didn't want to clean the dishes this morning like so at a certain point they just began to follow whatever he said so they wouldn't kind of receive these things from him yeah you don't want to get like a bad reading or yeah Yeah. exactly and it was like all super public so like they would stand up in front of everybody and get this like kind of reading reading so like he was definitely also using like social connection and how people exist within like a community to Mm -hmm. influence each other other and like what they were going to say like you know they all knew that if they said no that they would be basically publicly humiliated at like the next church Mm -hmm. gathering so like they just stopped saying no yeah Yeah. i feel like that's also a big thing yeah you don't want to be humiliated yes might as well say yes yeah so i mean he eventually got people to just really follow whatever he did um for fear of being called out or fear fear of just not going along with everybody else in the church so he began to basically cut off all members from his church from the outside world um before i said that there was an option for them to kind of give over all of their belongings now people who joined the people's temple had to turn over all of their assets to the church in exchange for free ribbon board so he was like, you can stay here and like you can live here, but you have to give me e- absolutely everything you own. So they were not allowed to own anything. They were not allowed to have anything. Um, he said he would make the decisions about what to give to people and who to like give them out mm-hmm. to, like based on the idea of like, oh, well, you need this. So you get this. But he was the one that made that decision. Like nobody else had any hand in that decision. Mm. So anyone who worked outside of the temple also had to turn over every single bit of their income to be used for um, the benefit of the community. Yeah. So, like, they could exist within the community, like, within the people's temple and, like, not work because, I mean, you technically could because you were not going to be paying for, like, room and, like, you weren't going to be paying for anything because he would feed you and house you and everything and you would just work for him. 
Um, but if you did work outside of the church, you are expected to turn over everything You're that you own. Like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering how he's affording like all these things. Is it still just do- donations? A lot of people did keep donating to him, and now at this point, like he's just getting so much yeah, money from paychecks. like their paychecks and things like that. But he was able to to keep things going. I um, mean, he's still growing and growing this group. Like he's still doing like these really shady recruiting practices, and he's mm-hmm. still going out to these marginalized communities. Um, he would often go out to like poor communities and kind of see how many people he could convince mm-hmm. to join his congregation as well. So he directed groups of his followers to work on various projects to earn income for the People's Temple. And he also set up an agricultural operation in Redwood Valley. So like that's like right outside Ukiah um, to grow food. So like they would grow food for themselves and then they would also grow food to sell to other people. So like that's also where he got some of his money. He was like setting up this like farming you know thing to sell um he organized large community outreach projects taking his followers by bus to perform work uh, community service across the region so some of these were volunteer projects some of these were projects they took on and he's once quoted as saying that he would not take on a project unless he could gain a hundred thousand dollars from this project so like he was getting a lot of money from this kind of thing. Um, so and it's he, not volunteering? No. <laughs> and he would go and like do these huge projects and get a lot of money from them. Um, he, and he would keep all the money. Yes. Yeah. For, I mean, he said for his church, like for the people, yeah. but it's basically just for him to do whatever he wants yeah. with. So he severely disciplined members of the church who didn't follow his demand. They were given less food because he controls the food. Yeah, he controls everything. They were forced to work longer and harsher hours. Like, he chose to give them jobs that were more physically demanding. He forced them to work longer hours. Like I said, they were publicly ridiculed either through, like, readings or the visions that he said they were creating. Or he would, like, get them up to stand in front of the church when they met and publicly humiliate them. And some were even physically beaten. Um, He began to dictate who could and who could not marry and have children. So he forced several members of the church to get abortions and also required several members of his congregation, both men and women, to have sex with him. So at this point, he's like full-blown cult leader. Like this is all like very, very common in terms of a cult. They want to control every single part of who you are and like what you do with your life. Yeah. So he, um, like I said, this place, Ukiah, was pretty rural. Like, it was pretty out of the way. He originally moved there because he didn't have a ton of money and he just needed somewhere to move his following to, uh, to kind of get his loyal followers to come with him and separate himself from the division back at home. Um, But now, at this time, he had much more money and he could move his church wherever he wanted. So in 1971 and 1972, Jim moved his temple to Los Angeles and San Francisco. So he set up like two locations, one in L.A. and then one in San Francisco. In San Francisco, um, he established a church at 1859 Gary Boulevard. And in Los Angeles, he built his church at 1366 South Alvarado Street. Um, so they're very urban areas and it was just designed to get like more popularity. Like he wanted to spread his message as far as possible and to as many people as possible. Here he had like a ton, a ton, a ton of recruiting practices. 
So these moves helped increase the temple's congregation to almost 3,000 people by 1975. Wow. So, like, he had, like, a lot of people coming from 300 um, when he moved out to Ukiah to now 3,000 in 1975, which is, like, a huge growth. So he would force his individuals and his followers to follow his every whim and his every command. During his leadership, he and his council, so he had like his leadership council of people underneath him, um, he, they subjected to his followers to like behavior mod- modification practices and like basically mind control tactics that he got from studying post-revolutionary China and North Korea. So he would like study these like mind control tactics basically and like use them on his followers without them knowing. That's terrible. Yeah. So like I said, he was like obsessed with getting money. Um, he used the church to carry out a ton of fundraising tactics. He would drive up and down California to take on projects. He sent out mailers and he sold signed and anointed photos of himself to raise money. So he would be like, these photos are blessed, like photos of me. Like you can have them, but only if you pay money. (laughs) So in 1973, um, a group of members defected. So at this point, like a lot of people were fully into the church and it was very 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 rare that people would leave he used a lot of fear tactics against people that left and this instance was one of the main times that he kind of made his power known like this is what's going to happen if you leave so these people that defected were known as the gang of eight um so eight young members escaped the compound in the church and ran to montana so after he fa- found out that they left, he sent multiple search parties after them and even rented out airplanes to search the highways for what? them. So he, like, he never ended up getting them, but, like, it just showed to people in the community, like, this is what I'm going to do if you leave. Like, you're not allowed to leave the church. People should be allowed to leave so, the church. So he was not happy with that. Um, and that is kind of the catalyst for what happened later. Um, he basically said that, like, the next time people defected and that, like, kind of his authority was questioned, that they should commit mass suicide to fight back against, like, the defection of their church members. So, in 1974, Jones wanted to isolate his members even more. Uh, California was not good enough for him anymore. He knew that he needed the land in Los Angeles and San Francisco to recruit members of the church, but he wanted to take along some of his most loyal followers to create his perfect socialist utopia. So this was kind of his end goal. Like he wanted to create this like community of people that were only self-sufficient like through the church. Like they didn't have any outside ties. They had nothing. They just existed through the church and the church controlled their entire lives. So he rented land in Guyana, which is a coastal country in South America. Um, And he named the land that he rented Jonestown after himself. So it was like, (laughs) this is a perfect name for this land, like this new town. Perfect. I'm going to name it after myself. Um, He wanted to create a socialist paradise and utopia, which he said saved their members from the sins of the outside world. So he was like, if you exist in the outside world, like you're a sinner. But if you exist in our community, like, you're free from sin and you're saved. Like, you're going to go to heaven when you die. 
1978, so about four years later, he had convinced over 900 people to move to, Georgia, uh, to Jonestown. Um, and the claims of abuse in the church and heavy control continued. So even more so now, he had the ability to kind of do whatever he wanted mm-hmm. to these people. And somehow claims of abuse got out back to America. So these claims led to an investigation of the temple. On November 17, 1978, Congressman Leo Ryan visited Jonestown to investigate these claims of abuse. While he was there, uh, a few temple members approached him and asked him to, to leave with him the next morning. So, again, this is like a big no-no. Like, he does not want people to leave. Um, so he had a lot of spies within his community. Like, he would hire people to kind of spy for him within the church and report back to him. So Jim heard about these people that wanted to leave, and he took matters into his own hands. So on November 18th, the next morning, um, the congressman and the defectors were intercepted by temple security guards. So he had, like, hired, like, people to basically be his, like, security guards um, at the airport. And they opened fire on the group, and they killed the congressman, three journalists, and one of the defectors, as well as injuring nine others. So they basically stop them from leaving uh, from leaving yeah. um but like you can't just kill people and no. and get away with it so jim knew that the murders of these individuals would f- come with legal action and the end of his rule over the temple in jonestown so he kind of knew that like this action like while he had stopped people from leaving like he was about to lose everything because obviously they're going to bring him back and they're going to put him in jail like mm-hmm. obviously something is going to come out as a result of that and he kind of wanted to leave um, on his own terms. So that evening in Jonestown, he ordered his congregation to c- drink a concoction of cyanide-laced grape-flavored flavor- grape Flavorade, which is like Kool-Aid, but just a different brand. So he had every single person, over 900 people, um, mixed together Kool-Aid, basically, and cyanide, um, which killed them instantly. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Um, he was found dead on the stage of the Central Pavilion, like in the very center of his town. Um, and he was resting on a pillow near his deck chair with a gunshot wound to his head. Uh, those who resisted committing suicide, like who said, I don't want to drink this, were injected with fatal doses of cyanide, um, as were infants who like couldn't drink Aww. the thing in the first place. So on all, 918 people died, including 276 children that lived there. Um, some survived by fleeing through the jungle or simply by being gone from the temple that evening, which actually included three of his sons. So wow. he, they, those people just like escaped just by chance. Mm-hmm. Um, but his sons like fell into heavy kind of consideration as main suspects after this time because they were gone so they were they were kept under house arrest for five days these three sons and they got interrogated about the deaths in jonestown um stefan one of his sons was accused of involvement in the deaths and placed in prison for three months tim and johnny other members of the temple like the basketball team they were gone on a basketball trip when this happened Mm -hmm. were taken to jonestown to help identify the bodies so they had to identify like all 918 bodies um and after returning to the u.s jim jones jr was placed under police surveillance for several months um they at the end they didn't find that he they had anything to do with that like their sons it was just the father 
um, that they were like heavily considered as suspects for quite a while. So the aftermath of that event um, was super huge. So the Temple San Francisco headquarters was basically like attacked by national media. Like they immediately descended on the San Francisco headquarters and immediately went after the relatives of the Jonestown victims. Um, and the mass killing became one of the best known events in U.S. history. Like after this, like people would note that this was one of the things that they remembered most, like where they were at, like when they heard about this event. Yeah, I can't imagine like over 900 people yeah. just like poisoned and then and it was like on the ground it was through like they like w- like most of them willingly did it. Yeah. Like was were willingly like okay, like you're telling and they knew like what was what it was. What it was. Yeah. Like they were like actively participated in this mass suicide because like this one person told them to, which is like insane. Like yeah. Imagine having that much control over that many people that you can tell them to kill themselves and they will. Which is nuts. That is so crazy. Yeah. So this event resulted in the single greatest loss of American civilian life in a deliberate act and it stayed that way until September eleventh, two thousand one. Mm-hmm. So this was the biggest um purposeful purposeful loss of American life until the nine eleven attacks. Um, many surviving temple members back in America were terrified of a hit squad targeting them after the event because, like, like I said, they had, like, 3,000 members in total. Like, so there are people that were part of the church that weren't in Jonestown. So a lot of people were terrified that, like, his biggest supporters who were still back in the U.S. would come after them and kill them, like, trying to kill off every single person of this church in kind of, like, a demonstration that, like, nobody could survive like after this attack um more of the higher ranking members uh such as michael prokes which is one of his biggest supporters and a leader of one of the churches um back in the u.s committed suicide in the months following the mass suicide so people who were part of the church did commit suicide like even though they were back in the u.s And basically, since the events of the Jonestown Massacre, a massive amount of literature and study has been kind of produced on this subject. Like, it's just, like, one of the biggest things that people study to kind of document the effects of cult leaders Mm -hmm. on people's psyches and, like, understanding of what they're going to do. So a lot of documentaries, films, books have been made, and a lot of them have been inspired by the events of Jonestown. And they definitely, Jim Jones and the events at Jonestown was basically like America's biggest cult. So like this was the biggest one till this day. And it had a defining influence on society's perception of cults and like what can be defined as a cult. Mm -hmm. Because I think a lot of people think it's like, oh, it's just like a super secret, exclusive like kind of society. But for so long, this was masquerading as a church and like a beneficial thing that it kind of changed how a lot of the American public looked at cults. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the widely known expression, like, to this day, like, drinking the Kool-Aid mm-hmm. is, was, like, created after the events wow. of Jonestown. It all makes sense now. Yeah. So drinking the Kool-Aid, it's, like, basically giving into something yeah, that, like, conforming. you know, conforming to something that maybe is, like, unpopular or, or something, like, I feel like I've heard, like, oh, like, what's in the water over there? Like, what's in the Kool-Aid at that place, like, that's also Mm -hmm. kind of created as an event of, like, as an 
after effect of the Jonestown massacre because like even though the specific beverage was not Kool-Aid, it was yeah. like flavor aid, it's like basically the same thing. <laughs> so, that is insane. I've I've never heard of that story. Yeah. I thought I had when you were talking about moving to a different mm-hmm. place because of the like possible terrorist attack. Yeah. But no. I had no I idea. know. That's insane. This was like it was such a huge thing. Like I feel like I had never heard of this either before I started researching it and like researching more into like the biggest kind of cults in the US. Yes. And I was like, that's crazy. Cause it didn't happen that long ago. Like 1978, I mean, is like yeah, not terribly long, long ago. time ago. So I feel like it I feel like I definitely should have heard of this before, but yeah. So that was Jim Jones. Wow. And was his wife there? Yep. Yeah. And she was, she died too. I don't know if she died by gunshot or by like poisoning Mm -hmm. herself, but she died. Um, All of their other children were there and they died as well. So it was only like the three sons that Mm -hmm. made it out alive. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. And... Nina thinks I would be most likely <laughs> to unwillingly join a cult. Like, you just did, wouldn't know it was a cult. Like, you'd be like, look at this great, like, society that I found. Like, I love this place. Oh, well, now I can see how, like, people fall into that. I yeah. I don't think I would. I think so. Maybe not this one, but, like, definitely, definitely one. No. Yes. I guess I'll find out. <laughs> You don't hear from me. Yeah. Just it's just going to be me leading this podcast. <laughs> I'm actually going to start my own. <laughs> and you're going to join it. But, and that is that. Pretty, wow. yeah, pretty intense story. Yeah. Just like a lot of death because of one person. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like I never, he's like, I've never heard his name before. Yeah. Like, he's like one of the biggest, like, he, I mean, he didn't directly kill them but like he told them all to kill themselves and then they did so like yeah that's there's basically so many more that's deaths than like any of those huge like serial killers that you hear about so just crazy that i've like never heard his name before because yeah if you think about it he forced them like to mm-hmm. that point yeah like not letting them leave and yeah putting the four or fear tactics yeah 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 it's crazy they right. should have a Netflix documentary. Cause Maybe. Have you seen that other one? I forgot the name right now, but it's like the church leader. Oh, I know what you're talking about, but I yeah. didn't watch it. But yeah, they should do something mm-hmm. like, I'm sure they have some sort of documentary, but um, yeah, I've never seen one like on Netflix or anything. So yeah. it's a pretty so fascinating story. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening. Thank you. Yeah, We'll catch you on the next episode. Yeah. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.